Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collins Guitars and Mandolins, each and every one built from the sound up in Austin, Texas. This episode is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, the home of Roots Music Instruction. If you want to improve your playing, join me and thousands of other pickers getting better every day at pegheadnation.com. Hi, this is Christina Argatti, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass, and maybe some old-time musicians, too. So my guest on Bluegrass Jam Along this week is Christina Gaddy, who has written a fascinating book about the history of the banjo um, called Well of Souls, uh, uncovering the banjo's hidden history. And she's come to talk about the book. Christina, it's a joy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. Um, the, there's a there's a sort of a line on the back of the book that says says this, an illuminating history of the banjo revealing revealing its origins at the crossroads of slavery, religion, and music. And that sums up so many of the, the sort of key themes really beautifully. And I'd like to talk about some of those um, as we go. But I'd first just like to ask a really simple question, sort of why this book? Um, it's such a funny, it's a funny question and a funny answer, um, mostly because I hadn't anticipated writing a book about the banjo. Um, my partner, Pete Ross is a banjo builder. He thinks about banjos a lot. He talks about banjos a lot. Um, it is definitely more than just his job. Uh, but you know, and, and so through him, I, you know, got an understanding of kind of the broad brushes of banjo history and also why it's really interesting specifically for, the kind of culture and history and development in the United States where we, you know, have this, um, a very painful past that people are still coming to terms with. Um, and also, you know, just, just kind of how, how things have developed over time where we see repeated themes. Um, one of them being, uh, the appropriation of black culture and music by white Americans. Um, and the banjo does a really good job of exploring that, of exploring the history of slavery, exploring the history of interactions between white Americans and black Americans. Um, and so I, I found that interesting, but I was not <laughs> obsessed with it by any means. Um, and I, Pete and I came across this piece of art in Amsterdam in the Netherlands that kind of made us both question some of what we thought and knew about banjo history, about the early banjo history. And I honestly just became obsessed with finding more answers and trying to kind of you know, unobscure some things that had been hidden. And, um, for a long time, I thought that that was just going to be me <laughs> doing this research and, um, kind of telling the, the banjo obsessed who, uh, I am friends with. Um, I hadn't considered myself amongst them yet, but, um, you know, basically sharing it with a small group of people who I thought would be interested, but, <laughs> as I researched more and as I kind of started formulating this into a bigger picture of history, I thought, okay, this isn't, this isn't number one, this isn't just a book about the banjo, but it's also not just, um, you know, for, for me or for the, this small group of people, it's really more people need to know about it. Um, so I hadn't wanted to write, as a long way of saying, I hadn't wanted to write a book about the banjo, um, but it just became such important. Um, I, I really felt like it became such important history that it needed to be shared beyond this small group of people. Yeah, it's really interesting what you say about history, because I interviewed um, banjo player Wes Corbett a while ago, and he said, if you're interested in learning about American history, trace the history of the banjo. Mm -hmm. I just found myself sort of, I think what the book does beautifully is what any good 
and I hate to sort of class it as a history book because it's not a history book, but any any attempt to tell history, if you start with a small sort of a, a small canvas almost and use that to tell the bigger story, a bit like looking at a pin, looking at the sun through a pinhole camera, just narrowing your focus to start with and drawing people in through a specific thing and then letting it all open out into this big spread of history and this big spread of culture and this big spread of, you know, the, the wider context is that I often find that fascinating rather than trying to start with the, the big spans of history and like the Kings and the Queens and the wars, and then drill down from there, starting with people and culture and day-to-day lives is always a fascinating way into anything. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of, a lot of that, has over you know millennia been um obscured because we do we are so in you know you know history has been written by the victors that kind of thing but the the histories that have often been told are of you know the kings the queens the wars the big things rather than okay but what you know what was life like on the ground for a you know a normal person a regular person for the majority of people um and I've always found that history um, much more interesting because I've I've been interested in history since I was a very small child, and that is always the history that um, has been compelling to me. And mm. I think with banjo, that also really holds up. Yeah, and so I guess there's just reading that that sort of description on the back of the book. Um, I was expecting music. I was expecting to read about slavery, and the bit that really struck me. Uh, was the religion element of it and the sort of the, and I guess this is the story that is, that needs to be told is that um, what what I took from it is very much that the banjo is not just an instrument of entertainment and music making. It has a much deeper role that it played that sort of unfolds through the book as you, as you tell the story, but just the idea of a banjo as a, a ritual ceremonial instrument that has a much, much greater significance. And even when, you know, that's sort of the origins of the name, itself to go wider yeah. than just the instruments and was that something did you know that was there and that's what you were looking for or was that something that came as you just sort of delved beyond the in- initial inspiration yeah no um i it is something that is it's 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 kind of obvious now or it should have been obvious um, and i explain in the book why maybe it wasn't obvious to a lot of people who have studied the banjo over the years but it wasn't it wasn't something that I had initially been looking for at all. It was when we came across this piece of art and I learned that that art was depicting, it's a diorama, three-dimensional piece of art, um, that it was depicting a religious dance, a ceremonial dance. And (laughs) then I I was like, wow, that, that's amazing. That's really different than, okay, is, is this famous image from the United States also depicting, um, a religious dance? And so I, that was the point where I went back and I was looking for it. I went back to these kind of known accounts of the banjo, known images of the banjo, um, from, you know, mostly the 1700s, but some in the 1600s and some in the 1800s. And all of a sudden it, it became obvious and it became obvious in this way that like still gives me goosebumps, but would give me goosebumps all the time. Then where, you know, I just, I, I mean, one important example for me is I was reading about, um, slavery in Saint-Domingue, which is the colony, the French colony that became Haiti after the Haitian revolution. And I was just reading about, um, uh, Cap, Cap Francois at that point, um, one of the large cities and, you know, reading about, um, the, the culture of the enslaved and the music and the dance. And then all of a sudden there's this watercolor of a, you know, it it's clearly now that you know it's seen and in that context is a also a religious dance that would have been um, part of voodoo and then there's a banjo and this is a image of a banjo that no one has had known about before and nobody nobody and i just was like you know holy crap holy shit this is um 
this is exactly the type of thing that fits into this new understanding. And maybe if we'd had it earlier, that would have changed the understanding, but it was like, okay, it's a banjo. It's a religious ritual that's happening at a burial ground um, outside of the cap. And like, here, here it is, this is, this is everything. Um, and so even in just, it was both looking at the old accounts, but then also coming across new accounts of the banjo, um, that, that nobody had known about before. And, and it clearly fitting into, um, this religious ritual, spiritual use being used for burials, being used, um, for, you know, other religious ceremonies as, as a, as an instrument within that. Um, and then once, you know, but the reason that I say it seems kind of obvious is also because that is always the role that drums, for example, have played in voodoo. And we know that well today that drums are not just an instrument, but that they have very special roles. And when we go back to, um, you know, back to Africa and back to African instruments there. You also have that with lutes. Um, I, Pete and I were talking to an old friend named Ulf Jagfors, uh, who lives in, he's Swedish, lives in Sweden. And he was talking about, um, Somalian musicians, uh, no Mauritanian musicians. I'm sorry that he had met and, you know, there being a lot of, of conflict kind of in, Northern Mali and in Mauritania and saying, you know, some of these instruments that these guys had, I don't know if they have them anymore because if they were killed, their instruments would have been, you know, buried with them. And so that they have that kind of religious ritual ceremonial um, function there too. And so you, you add all these things together and it's like, Oh yes, of course, this is, this is what it was, but we hadn't been looking at the evidence in that way at all. And and that's, you know, something that emerges through the book, but also one of the things that just made me think most as I was reading all of it is just how much we view the world through a certain lens because of the culture we grew up in and the values and the importance that is put on stuff. And people recording the history of the banjo would have seen it through their own lens and would have missed so much. And but there's a, there's a point you make about at one point that drums in many areas were banned for slaves because they were seen as a military device or something that might potentially incite people or draw they've been used in so many sort of you know subservient and military ways over the years and it's a fairly obvious thing but maybe banjos weren't seen in that way because stringed instruments aren't thought of as so so maybe in some cases where people were forbidden from having drums they might not have been forbidden from having a what would have been thought of as a lute or a guitar at that time yeah so there's there's like kind of two things which is one, the Western European, which is, you know, the culture from which the United States believes that it's derived. Um, it, the, the drum's always this very militaristic instrument. And it's like, okay, that's a military instrument. So there's a very clear connection of, okay, if people are playing the drums, they might be doing that to communicate. Um, they might be doing that to incite rebellion. So we can ban drums. Um, but dances were also banned for the same reason because it was thought okay if you had these people gathering um the kalinda is one example where it was banned very early on in the french colonies um and the banjo was played with the kalinda and it's it's banned and you still have accounts of people playing it and it's banned again you know it's reiterated that it's banned and people are playing it uh, or dancing it and playing instruments with it um so on the one hand they, they try to ban things but it doesn't always work um and so in some instances, the banjo is seen as a part of that kind of larger ritual, um, larger scene that's being banned and, and thought of as rebellious. Um, but you do also get the case where, um, so one of the people that I, that I kind of talk about in, in the book that's used to describe this kind of banning tolerance and then also banning is um, a man named Thomas Thistlewood in Jamaica. And he's an absolutely horrible person. Oh, like the, the, the atrocities that he committed against people are not something that I went into in the book. They're relatively well known um, at this point of a, as his, as a historical figure, just because he recorded what he did. Um, but 
in the reason that I used him kind of as a vehicle to look at the banjo was that when um, he mentions the banjo first, he's kind of just observing it. Okay, this is what's going on. Uh, this is this instrument. And then it's not until after um, music and dance are used as part of a revolt, a rebellion in Jamaica that he seems to then say, okay, uh, Lincoln, who's kind of his, his most trusted enslaved, the enslaved person who he owns that is kind of his most trusted one. And we'll even give this man a gun to go defend him um, against, you know, attacks. But when he finds this guy playing, uh, listening to his friend, um, George playing the banjo, that's, then he smashes the banjo to pieces. Um, and so he doesn't explicitly say, oh, this is because it was dangerous. And, um, you know, I thought that they were up to something bad with the banjo, but that's very much implied given how much freedom he will give Lincoln otherwise, um, and kind of his attitude towards the banjo in the past. Uh, so, so there is that, but then there is also this gap, kind of a gap in knowledge of, um, there's definitely some people who understand this kind of ritual power of the instrument. Um, but then there are others who don't see it that way at all and think, oh, this is just a, you know, yeah, it's a lute. It's a guitar. How Mm -hmm. is that? How would that be, um, used for kind of, in their case, imagining nefarious purposes, um, whether it's, to, you know, bring people together to play music where they could then, you know, plan a revolt or plan something um, against a slave owner, or if it is just simply for the purpose of coming together to engage in a religious ritual together and in that way strengthen bonds um, and, and you know, get perhaps on the same page with um, planning a revolt or, you know, even it doesn't, I think that's the other interesting thing I learned, which is, um, not the other one of many, (laughs) which is the idea that um, like you have uh, Thistlewood, for example, commenting that he thinks uh, somebody is, is very lazy and you're like, okay, well, is that person lazy or are they intentionally, you know, doing kind of a work slowdown where they are acting or doing something in a certain way that's not necessarily, a revolt or a rebellion that's violent and armed, but just a place, you know, a dance could be a place to come together and talk about, um, you know, for example, the Banya and Suriname, the dance, they would uh, make fun of the slave owners and they would make fun of the enslaving class um, in, in some of the, the kind of music and dialogue that went into that um, so that it, that rebellion didn't always have to be kind of what we consider uh, the, the straightforward armed revolt, um, but could be much more subtle ways of resisting um, oppression. And that ties into something um, that you said about, I mean, there's so many sort of different threads of this, but the idea that uh, I, I mean, it's not a culture because the enslaved people came from all sorts of countries and backgrounds and it's not one culture, but a, a whole collection of cultures. But, uh, I think the, the, the sentence you used was every part of this from the dance itself to the music, to what the men and women wear is a balancing act of permission and restriction, allowance and suppression. And one of the things I found fascinating was the sense that what is going on on the surface is not necessarily what is happening. So in certain instances, religious practices were continued that had been banned, but were dressed up, you know, replacing the names of of particular gods with saints names, for example, or Mm -hmm. as a way of sneaking things past people because they wouldn't realize what was going on. And that whole, uh, there's something amidst a very dark story, something incredibly hopeful about culture, finding a way to survive when it's being repressed and oppressed and these people aren't valued at all people will still find a way to, to do the thing that they need to do to communicate and be themselves. They'll just find ways of hiding it from people. We'll be right back with you just after this. Collings Guitars has been a long-time supporter of the bluegrass community, from collaborating with artists to sponsoring festivals big and small, and now by sponsoring Bluegrass Jamalong. 
Handmade in Austin, Texas, every Collings guitar and mandolin that leaves the shop is built from the sound up, and the team loves seeing a Collings in the hands of players of all levels, from local musicians to world-renowned pickers. Visit collingsguitars.com for more. This episode is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, the home of Roots Music Instruction. With 65 streaming video courses for guitar, mandolin, banjo, fiddle, dobro, bass and ukulele from some of the leading names in acoustic music, Peghead Nation is something for every picker. You'll learn the tunes and techniques you need to join in at jams and play the music you love, plus advanced techniques like improvisation, theory and ear training. Your first course is just $20 per month and you can add more for $10 a month. Sign up for any course and get your first month free with the promo code JAMALONG, all one word. Join thousands of other players, including me, who are advancing on their instruments and having more fun playing the roots music they love at pegheadnation.com. Yeah, yeah. And that's, um, I think that even gets into the history that doesn't come into the, to my book, um, which is kind of this post-1865, post-American Civil War period, um, where you you know, the banjo playing and the banjo, the instrument itself are very, um, tainted by blackface minstrelsy. Um, and yet they don't, the banjo never leaves, um, black American culture. Um, it, it is perceived by many to have left. Um, but you still get, you know, uh, people in the kind of black string band tradition as, as we refer to it. Um, playing banjos and banjo and fiddle music and playing, you know, songs and repertoire that are totally outside of what you hear a lot of white players playing, even if they're from the same geographic region and different playing techniques and different playing styles. Um, and so the fact that you, you know, see that still in like, you know, the 1980s, 1970s, when, when some of these folks were um, kind of being rediscovered, uh, but came from a long, long tradition, um, you realize that, yeah, the, the, the banjo, I mean, in lots of culture finds a way, but in this case, the banjo finds a way to um, remain and it, and it may, might not be as kind of overtly religious as it once was, Um but still has kind of uh, a a gathering power, and um, one might argue that 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 gather the that power of gathering people together and bringing music um, to people isn't religious in that it's you know connecting with gods or God, um, but does create a spiritual experience for people where they feel more connected to each other, which is I think one of the big things with. Um, both, you know, music in general, but also when you're playing the instrument yourself and you're jamming with people and you're kind of connecting and vibing with them. Um, and it's, uh, it's, you know, they've done studies now that show that that's physiological, uh, and that our kind of brain waves can sync with one another and our heart rhythms can sync with one another when we're playing music together. But I think that that's part of like the community building that whether or not there's a religious spiritual element is still very present, you know, even in, music making today and banjo playing yeah and there, there is a there's sort of particularly in bluegrass and old time and string band music there is a kind of still uh, a very different but sort of equally like a kind of ritual to the way these things are the way people sit the way they interact with each other the way people signal things you know and as an outsider it could you know you'd be totally baffled what happens when somebody lifts their leg up at the end of a tune to signal it's going to end you begin what are they doing what are they doing but yeah. And there are, so there are like rituals of another kind still very embedded with it. And I think people, people, uh, people find ways to communicate that don't necessarily require words or talking about the thing itself. You can talk around a thing or communicate around a thing. Um, and that's, it's fascinating. And that, that one of the other things I found really interesting was just the, because we sort of know everybody recognizes the banjo. It's a very recognizable instrument. Um, and the certain characteristics that we see it as having now that people don't even think about. It's just, that's what a banjo looks like. Um, but it was really interesting to see this range of instruments from very different bits of the world arriving in very different bits of the world, 
but obviously pretty much the same instrument, often called by very different names, often very similar names. And I'm sort of curious as to, it's sort of a two-part thing. One, how that all came together and coalesced into what we know as the banjo now, but all, also does, is the banjo, as we know, it, an American instrument influenced by African instruments, or is it just the cult? Is it still an African instrument that's just taken on a new form? Because it's, you kind of think of the banjo as being quintessentially American as a thing, but the roots are obviously way, way deeper. And it is yeah. the, is the modern banjo a different species than the sort of the gourd banjos or the? <laughs> um, it's definitely a question that people have different opinions about. Um, I, you know, my opinion is that the the there, you know, the, that they're all banjos, that there's gourd banjo, gourd body banjos and wooden rimmed banjos. Um, and, you know, just like there's like cigar box banjos, right? Nobody would be like, oh, that's something different. Um, but, you know, the, the, the tricky thing also becomes that the kind of gourd bodied instrument was exclusively played by African-Americans and people of African descent throughout the Americas, um, and there is no, there is no instrument in Africa that has the characteristics that a banjo has, even from the first image of a banjo that we have from 1687. Um, and that is a gourd body with the neck entering through the kind of traverses the top to the bottom of the gourd rather than the side to the side. Um, and that's, a very, it's, it sounds like, oh, that's a crazy difference. Who, what, why, why would that matter? Um, but it does matter. And it's very important um, for that kind of ritual structure, as I call it, religious structure of the banjo, that it represents this kind of intersection of earthly and godly planes in a way that African instruments don't have that construction. But having that construction is also just, it was something that Pete knew about. Um, as a gourd banjo builder and having examined these old uh, gourd and calabash body banjos, he understood that he's like, okay, they, they cut through the, you know, the center of it rather than the middle. And, you know, he basically is like, I don't understand why they would do that because what that does is it creates, and this is for all of our music nerd friends out of the, out there, the action is so high that, like you couldn't play bluegrass banjo on it because even getting out of kind of your first position is nearly impossible because the strings just like go so far off the, the fingerboard that, you know, you couldn't play way up the neck and um, West African uh, musicians, especially, you know, griot jelly coming um, from the Senegambia um, but even accounting players, Jola accounting players are incredibly virtuosic and they're able to play way up the neck and play lots of notes. And so you wouldn't be able to do that with this construction. And that was where Pete was like, okay, I don't understand why that's happening. And once I un explained to him this kind of ritual symbol that's all over the place of, you know, a a circle being, you know, bisected by a line, um, across the crossroads. That was when he said, Oh my gosh, that's how these banjos are constructed. And that's the only, like for him as a builder, he's like, that's the only reasonable explanation. I couldn't imagine any other reason why they would make them harder, you know, essentially harder mm -hmm. to play. Um, so that, is super fascinating. I'm not sure that it answers any question that you asked me. Um, other, other than to say that, that that is fundamentally the difference between the kind of banjos as you see them in the very beginning and um, African instruments. Um, but also across Africa, you have an, an you know, a wide range um, of, of instruments. And I, I kind of pointed out in the book, but it's also something that uh, is, I've, I've just, you know, said to other people, which is some of the earliest research into um, African lute traditions was in West Africa. And so then the next research built on that and the next research built on that. And there's been a lot less 
um, scholarship into uh, even, you know, Lu traditions in what is today Nigeria, or um, there's really not a lot on East African lutes from Madagascar. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a little, you know, there's, there's points where it was a little bit frustrating where I wanted to know more about that. Um, and it just hasn't happened. And my fear now is that, you know, some of that knowledge has been lost, um, as happens that tradition bearers, um, pass away and there's nobody interested in that tradition that can, you know, share that information. So one of my hopes is that people become more interested in that. And we figure out ways of, um, doing more kind of research and scholarship into those, those musical traditions and, 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 making sure that any knowledge that exists today isn't lost and, and figure out how we can, you know, perhaps get some of the things back that we don't know. And that's, yeah, and it's really interesting. And, and presumably because so much of, I guess what we have is what was either recorded or collected by Europeans um, as opposed to preserved by the cultures it came from. And so they would miss all sorts of context and and clues and evidence and things that would help them understand what a thing was. If they just see it as something else and write down, well, I saw somebody playing a guitar that you know, mm-hmm. it takes a while to then reverse engineer that to what it actually was. Um, and, and presumably the, just the geography of the slave trade affected which instruments from which countries were brought to America because certain countries would have had a lot more people sort of shipped across the Atlantic than others and they would have brought their instruments and their culture with them. And, and so the, the balance of what exists existed in the US comes from those places as well, where there'd be other places that maybe weren't as, as predominant. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. And I think also there's the there's um the important thing to remember is kind of people coming together um in 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 these places where you, you definitely see in a lot of the accounts, um, it being like, oh, then that was the Congo dance or that was the, um, you know, the, the, the wolf was that, that was their kind of grouping of people or, um, where the, the white, you know, Europeans who are looking at it know that that kind of segregation is going on, but there are other dances where everybody participates, but the idea of thinking about who it was that, or, or how people classified themselves is really interesting. Um, because, you know, just as we see in, um, you know, the United States or even in in Britain where you've had, um, a lot of immigration and a lot of influx of people, you have people who would say, you know, in, in England, let's say like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I'm part of this West Indian community. I'm, I'm Jamaican and they, they're born in England and they feel very much British as well, but they, they still have that connection because that's their families. That's in the community that they live, that those are the people that they interact with. Um, and so, you know, obviously it's extremely different when you're enslaved and you have no choice about being where you are. Um, but you can have that feeling of, oh, you know, I'm, I'm from, you know, this group of people or this, this language, uh, you know, language group in Africa. And so I'm going to connect a lot more with those people. But then there are certain things where it's like, you know, we have to, we have to come together. We all have to come together to, to make this work. And I think that, um, the, the religions is where you see that so, clearly and interestingly um foodways is another place where you can see that uh with kind of different foods being you know coming together but with um with religion you see that of okay there's you know in vodou in haiti for example you have these things that are very clearly you know from african from the religion that is in you know present day Benin that's very similar to Vodou, but then you also have Catholic saints, and you also have you know the the symbolism of the Congo cosmogram, for example um, and so you know even within that religion, you can see these kind of different component parts that come together um, to form something, and that's one of the things that um, when I kind of talk in detail about 
uh, some of the banjos that we either have, you know, the actual physical banjo left or the um, image of, of like seeing like, okay, well, this one has a carving on top. That's a really common thing, you know, um, in this, the seated man of, of a banjo that was observed in New Orleans. That's very common here. But the flat fingerboard is something that's like European and also um, from, you know, East Africa. But the gourd body is really something that's West African. And so even within these, these banjos, physical objects, you can kind of see that blending of cultures, which is... Uh, super, super interesting to me and, and something that got me thinking a lot about how, how people would, would bring things together and say, okay, well, the most important thing is just that we have this instrument. If it's important to you that it's structured like that, um, then let's do that. If it's important to you that it has that, you know, ritual drawing on it, then like, we'll do that too. Um, and of course that didn't happen all at once, um, probably over time, but you know, to have that was, to see that was really interesting. Presumably some people were making instruments from whatever was available to hand. It wouldn't necessarily have been the, you know, the materials they'd have had at home. They found themselves in a different country where different plants grew, different varieties of things. And, and sometimes I guess an instrument would have had to be improvised out of what they had. Yeah. Yeah. And that's an interesting thing too, because, um, I often call them just generally gourd banjos. Um, but they were sometimes made of calabashes too, um, and are described as, as being calabashes, which is tricky. It's very tricky because sometimes people don't know the difference. Um, but in, in the tropics, um, in the Caribbean, there are calabash trees which grow this hard, this fruit that gets very hard when it's dried. Um, but it sprouts out of the tree rather than a gourd that grows on the vine on the ground. Um, but that's an example where uh, if you were West African and you were used to making an instrument out of a gourd, uh, then if you didn't have a gourd on, you know, uh, Jamaica, let's say, then you'd have a calabash tree and you could, you know, use that instead um, yeah, so that's, that's definitely true. And, and you also see it in, um, particularly the, this new, new banjo, um, new old banjo that turned up in Lyon, France, which I only have had the chance to briefly, uh, mention at the end of the book. Um, but it's really one where like, especially the nails, um, that the maker used to tack down the skin head, are like, you know, regular finish nails. And then there are upholstery, you know, nails and, or like upholstery tacks that are large and then some small and then some other tacks. And it really is, you know, seems to be kind of using what he had at hand and maybe replacing things as, as things got worn out or fell out or, you know, that wood tack broke off. So now I'm going to replace it with, um, you know, an upholstery tack that I have access to. Hmm. I find there's a, you mentioned earlier about um about communities like you know in Britain maybe a, a Jamaican community and everybody in it was born potentially in Britain but identifies very much with with culture from where their family came from and and I find particularly the music as a not just a British person but an English person I find I find any kind of musical connection to culture fascinating because even within the British Isles the Scots have a fairly strong sense of their music. The Irish clearly have an incredibly strong sense of their music and so do the Welsh, but English people, like I don't know if many English people could name an English folk song. There might be songs they think of as being kids songs that turn out to be an English folk song, but because, and I think largely because we are for centuries have been the oppressed less than we've been the oppressor. We haven't had to defend our culture so much and we've brought other people's cultures back and sort of appropriated or just um amalgamated them and and we've learned but we haven't had other people trying to take our culture off us and so i find like just from a personal level my relationship with the idea of folk music of my culture is quite a strange one because i'm not entirely sure what it is Mm -hmm. it's all there we have it but it just feels like it's a bit less close to the surface sometimes yeah yeah um i think you know, that there's an also an interesting thing here in the United States where, um, 
people have ideas about what is kind of traditional culture or what is a traditional folk song and it may or may not be that it could, you know, I think a lot of, I think one of the things that is surprising to folks who come into, um, you know, bluegrass and old time music in particular is thinking like, Oh, these are these old tunes. And then some of them you're like, well, that actually was written in, you know, 1845 by a blackface minstrel. Um, and it entered, you know, it entered the banjo fiddle vernacular, um, and has now become something different, but that it's, that that's where it's from, you know, is, is I think surprising. Um, and <laughs> we were talking with a, a friend about kind of like traditional music and what is that, mean and for a lot of folks um you know it and this is something i can talk about for hours but it's um you know it 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 just be opens up this interesting question of um like we were saying with like ritual of oh if you come into an old time jam and it's in this place then you know the banjo player is not allowed to choose what the tune is it's only the fiddler um you know the banjo players can kind of suggest something but they can't start a tune themselves and there's or in bluegrass for example like if it's a bluegrass band it's these instruments and if you have another instrument then you're not a bluegrass band anymore um and you know, like looking at Irish traditional music or, um, my mom's from Sweden. So Swedish traditional music, I have a lot of experience with, it's like, I went to a Swedish, um, you know, music like week long camp. Uh, and there was a saxophone player and he played saxophone and he wanted to play Swedish traditional music on saxophone. And nobody was like, Oh, I'm sorry. You can't do that. You know, it was like, okay, yeah, sure. You want to learn this, you know, 400 year old Swedish fiddle tune on saxophone, go right ahead. Um, and so I think sometimes there's also an interesting balance where if, if it is more traditional and you have these like very like set, you know, for example, with Irish and you can be like, yeah, this tune is like so, so, so old or, you know, then, then we, you know, here's the first record that we have of it or whatnot. Then there's almost like a more openness to be like, well, we'll, we still know that that's there and we can still, you know, go back to it. But yeah, if you want to come in and play some crazy instrument with our, like, you know, Irish jam, like that's okay. And like, we can be more open to inviting other instruments in, which is also, you know, how, how we get the banjo in Irish music in you know, in the first place. Um, and then to have like old time and bluegrass in the U S especially uh, be so, Oh, if you want to have, you know, you couldn't, you can't put a tuba in this, you know, old time jam. And it's like, well, it's the same as the bass line that the bass is playing, but it's because it's made out of brass, you know, you can't have that. And that's really interesting because it's sort of, it, it, it links in with something that particularly talking about authenticity that I hadn't considered and through lots of kinds of music, but particularly talking to people about, um, I talked talk to mandolin player Tristan Scroggins quite a bit about authenticity and bluegrass and, you know, there's a, a certain part of it is about when the first recordings were made and then something's frozen in time. And that's the earliest, a bit like, you know, you're looking for sources of information about banjos that either are or have been out there, but don't exist or haven't been discovered or, you know, so it's, but the, the thing I hadn't really thought about, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how recorded music has changed, how we perceive things, but I hadn't thought about sheet music and you mm. sort of explain how, the the banjo as as publishers started disseminating sheet music it was incredibly important to them to appear authentic but not mm -hmm. that important to them to be authentic it was very much yeah. a marketing version of the real thing yeah rather than and the one, real thing. one thing that's super fascinating um is that so so there were interesting um kind of publish like intellectual property laws which allowed folks in the U S to publish English stuff basically without getting the rights and, and people in England to get it from the U S without getting the rights. Um, so some of those early blackface minstrel performers, number one, their sheet, their songs would be, you know, published in England. Um, and then also you would have, then you had the kind of formation of English, uh, minstrel troops, which, you know, to me, when I was first learning of that, it seemed very, it seemed odd. Like, why, well, you know, like, 
why did why did these minstrel troops go and tour in 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 England and Ireland and why were they so popular there? And then I saw these sheet music covers from ones that were published in London. And whereas the that attempted authenticity in the United States was, oh, we're making a plantation scene. It's a southern plantation scene. And in England, they're island scenes and you have palm trees. And I'm like, oh, yes, this is so U.S. centric of me to to not be thinking about the fact that um, as these things are published in England, uh, it's, you know, right after slavery has been abolished. Um, and so there is kind of a little bit of this nostalgia of what's going on in the Caribbean and, and, and a knowledge of, yeah, that, that is part of kind of our larger, you know, I don't think that they would have thought that it was British culture necessarily, but that it is part of, you know, the British empire, um, these islands and that culture. And then, you know, kind of all just like sunk in and made sense of, oh yeah, of course, they would have also been interested in in this music, which was representing a a place that they would never have seen. And it's not because they were thinking, oh, that place is the south of the United States. They were thinking of that as, oh, these Caribbean, you know, cultures that that we have read about or have heard about or maybe even know somebody who was trading there, um, but we've never seen for ourselves. And and this idea that you were seeing it on stage, even though it was a completely fabricated or maybe not completely fabricated, but it is white people in blackface, you know, singing these songs that they say are authentic, um, without, you know, and, and, and the, the, there's still some debate there too, of, you know, how much of the music that they said they were getting was from actual black tradition and how much was their impression that it was from the black tradition and they could just kind of market it as such. Um, and I think that's a question that, we may or may not ever answer. Um, you know, it's it's really hard to say without concrete evidence. Yeah, and it's a it's a funny thing because, I mean, I I grew up in England. I was born in the early seventies, and when I was a kid, there was still a TV show called The Black and White Minstrel Show, which mm-hmm. was and this was the TV show. You know, we only had probably two or three TV channels at this point: prime time, family entertainment, um, and it seems so unthinkable that that was on TV for me as a kid in my lifetime now. Um, but it was very much part of the the sort of entertainment landscape, even at that yeah. point, you know? Yeah. And it had been for, you know, more, you know, 150 years at that point. Um, so in one way, it's like totally shocking to think that late, um, you know, because the, see, I, I'm not, I don't know if there was any primetime, you know, shows like that in the U S I could be totally wrong. I could get a listener email in on that. Um, but you do still have, uh, I mean, you know, it was, it was kind of, I mean, ubiquitous and you have things like Disney, not, you know, not releasing song of the South anymore. Um, you know, because it has scenes that, that are offensive. Um, but I, I also love watching holiday movies and uh, just kind of knowing, you know, there's like White Christmas, which we know this, that there's a song from, but the song actually came from a film called Holiday Inn and, you know, we're watching it and all of us. And so the whole plot of the movie is every girl and guy and whatever, you know, 19, 1950s, I think, romance intrigue. Um, but each each scene of the movie happens during a holiday. So it's, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas. And then they come to uh, Lincoln's birthday and the celebration that the Holiday Inn Hotel is giving everyone's in blackface. And it actually plays into the plot of the film. um, But it's this crazy thing where I'm like, you, so you couldn't, if you cut that, if you cut that section, you couldn't really show like the film doesn't make any sense because there's a key plot point that happens there, but it's also incredibly offensive, even though the idea is, is that the black, you know, they're, they're in blackface because they're celebrating Lincoln and they're so happy that he freed the slaves, you know, and it's, it's, it's not 
it's definitely not pro-slavery, but it's incredibly racist. And, you know, we're streaming it on, you know, whatever streaming channel service. And I'm like, I think they should probably have to put, you know, a warning on this because this is still like a movie that people would want to consume because they would associate it with these kind of, you know, nostalgia film, you know, nostalgia holiday films, um, like white Christmas, but you, you know, it's just like, Oh yeah, there, there it is. That was just something that nobody would have, you know, flinched at, at that point in time. Um, and you know, I think more and more we're learning about that, that history and, and why, um, why it is offensive and why it continues to be offensive. Um, but uh, you know, I think that's the other, <laughs> the other thing in, in not wanting <laughs> I, I, I hesitate to say I didn't want to write the book because once I started writing the book, I definitely wanted to write the book. Um, but the, the problem that I faced was I didn't want to write about minstrelsy even when I had agreed to start writing the book because I was like, that is, so, it's so hard. It's such a hard subject. There's so much unknown, um, it's really difficult. It's really ugly. Uh, and so with all of that, thinking about all of that, I was kind of like, and also, you know, my, my focus really wanted to be on, on the African-American history, on the black history. I had one editor who's like, why don't you write the whole history of the banjo, like starting in 1687 and then going to, you know, like Taylor Swift and Mumford and Sons. And I was like, that's really interesting, but that's not what, that's not what I want to write. Like, I want to write about this part, but I was not allowed <laughs> with my publisher and my editor to get away with, you know, to, to stop at the point where I wanted to stop because, you know, they, they pointed out this very important fact, which is, okay, well, if it was a black instrument, an African-American instrument, and that was what even people at the time understood it to be, why is that such a hard concept for us to get to today? when you can't get there without going through minstrelsy. Um, so that was also just, you know, and, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take up a lot of the book. I still think that there's well, more research to be done there. There's probably a more contemporary book that could be written about that because the, the books that the kind of w w one very, um, <sighs> one very important book is, is from the 1960s that, that deals with um, blackface minstrelsy and especially the music and the musicians. And it's, it's very hard to read. You know, it's one of those that I would only recommend to people with the caveat that it uses 1960s language and you very well will find that offensive. Mm. Um, but yeah, so it's, so it's one of those things where it's like, it's very hard to, to research. It's hard to write about. Um, and I didn't want to do it because it was going to be hard. Uh, but it, it did, you know, it's, it wouldn't have been complete without that. And I think, um, that's really interesting because it, you, there is, there is another book that could be written that deals with the development of the banjo up to the present day, but it would, it would also need to start from someone. It, it feels like that, that era is potentially the bridge between the two that even though it may be the hardest bit in some ways to read about and deal with is it's the very strong bit of connecting tissue between what we see now. And without that there, they might feel like two disconnected things, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think that's also the key is that you can't, um, you can't even kind of understand banjo today if you don't understand um, that blackface minstrelsy um, and the kind of birth of the banjo as an industrial object of one that was both easier to manufacture, but also, you know, made for a different clientele. And that doesn't mean that people didn't, you know, play vernacular tunes on it or make it their own, um, you know, and that they were, that, that, all banjo music today is, you know, derived from the blackface minstrel show, but it's, we do have to realize that that was, that was the explosion of the instrument. That was where, 
um, it was all of a sudden all over the place, just like, you know, the electric guitar with rock and roll that all of a sudden this instrument was, um, it was, yeah, able to be bought and sold in, in a, in a regular store. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was something that, you know, gourd banjos are very fragile. They will break easily. They will decay over time. Um, and, uh, and, and wooden rimmed banjos are, you know, a little more structurally sound, a little more, a little easier to, to, to take care of. Um, and, and that, that, that is an important, you know, that's the transitional period and it, it is important to understand for sure. And so it's interesting as, as well, you talking about finding that bit difficult to write with, and you sort of, you, you talk, um, in the book about, about having to grapple with your own bias, to write the book because you you have um a cultural upbringing and a cultural background that that gives us always we spoke about before a, a certain lens that you view the world through um and did you was it a hard decision to write the book in terms of feeling like you had a right to tell essentially a, a black american story from the point of view of a a non-black american yeah, absolutely. Um, there were many points where I thought I shouldn't be writing it at all. Um, that it, that I'm, I mean, you know, from the, especially from the point of I'm, I'm going to miss things, you know, it's not, um, kind of doing it historical justice because somebody else, um, who, who is closer to this culture would, would look at this account and see things that I'll, I'll never you know, I'll never be able to see until somebody points it out to me or until I read something that, that makes it obvious. Um, and, and also, you know, very much feeling that it, it, you know, again, in, in some ways, um, you know, appropriating this history for, I mean, some might accuse of, you know, for my own gain, right. Of like that, my name is on this book and that that book is out in the world. Um, but where I eventually landed is that, you know, the, the reason that this history has been skewed and distorted is because of white people. White people are the ones who have done the skewing and the distorting and the, um, you know, even, even intentional, uh, not to mention unintentional. And so, I think that the, and, 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 you know, it was also an interesting period to, to, to write this because I, I started working on it long before 2020. Um, but it was in the summer of, of 2020 that I I seriously started, you know, sitting down and writing the book. Um, and with the, uh, Black Lives Matter protests and the death of George Floyd in the United States, um, you know, a lot of those, those issues were very much at at the forefront, I think, at least of my mind, but at least of other people. And it's, and it's not to say that I hadn't thought about it at all before that point, of course, thought about it. Um, because when, when we're talking about banjo history, there's no way that you can't think about that. Um, but the ultimate kind of decision that, that I came down to was (laughs) white people can't mess things up and then leave them for other people to clean up. We can't distort and, um, uh, you know, make banjo history something that it's not, and then say, okay, now it's up to, you know, just black scholars to, to fix this and, and tell us all, you know, what we've been doing wrong. I, I don't think that that, um, is an approach that, that works. I don't think it's an approach that's right. Um, and so, this is kind of, you know, an attempt for me to say, yeah, white people fucked it up. And, and at least one, um, white person is going to try to remedy that. And, you know, my, the, the hope that I put at the end of, of the book is kind of, um, a call to action of, of other folks to say, you know, if, there's something in here that intrigued you. If there's something in here that, that you think needs to be further explored, like we, we need to do this together almost. Um, and not necessarily saying like, uh, 
that's on you to, you know, finish doing this research or something like that. But just to, to, to bring it into our consciousness of like, this is reparative work that we should all be working towards. And it shouldn't just be, you know, it shouldn't just be one person. And it definitely um, shouldn't just be something that we say, okay, if the banjo is, you know, African-American, then it's on African-Americans to, to, to do all that work, you know, cause it is a lot of work. And I, I think, the other <clears throat> um, point I've talked about a little bit, which is there's also the the real fact that a lot of the accounts um, from this historical period are very, have the potential to be very traumatic um, for, for people to read and especially for African-Americans. Um, like, you know, the Thomas Thistlewood is a great example. Reading that is, is disturbing. Um, reading what he wrote is disturbing. Reading about him is disturbing. Um, and I can't, you know, even begin to kind of imagine what that would be like, um, for an African American. Uh, and so, you know, some of those it's, it is again, you know, there, there's part of me that just is like, it's not fair to say, Oh, you, you have to go read that, um, and, and get through all of that traumatic material, you know, to get to this historical material. And so that's also something that I was very conscious of in the book of, um, trying to minimize as much of that. Um, you know, some of the things are still hard. They're always going to be hard to write about, but to, to try not to, on the one hand, you know, traumatize readers, um, but also not kind of, you know, use any, accounts of enslavement to there are still folks who are titillated by that and to, to not do that kind of titillation um, of these disturbing topics. Uh, I, so the, what you say about it being a sort of cumulative ongoing collective kind of work of research and scholarship and building on knowledge is something that I, I definitely felt through the book because there's not only that, as you say, quite an open call at the end, but I, I just got the sense of, you know, there is, when, when a certain historical period is recorded, it's recorded through a lens. When that's looked at again, 50 years later, it's looked at through a different lens. When it's looked at 100 years after that, it's through a different lens. And um, and so much of the the source material is, that you've looked at is being looked at differently now than it would have been when this was written about in the 60s or, or whenever. Um, and also you talk, there's a, and I you know, have to forgive me because I've forgotten her name, but there's um, a librarian and the, the, there's a film you mentioned that the, mm-hmm. yeah, the, 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 the yeah. librarian and the banjo uh, yeah. and so much of her work goes into this and, and it felt very much like you weren't saying, and this is it. And I've built on that. And here's the story. It was like, here's what I can add to the story. What What's next? Cause it feels like the kind of book that there will be a second edition of when more stuff comes to light and people email you from all over the world saying, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or, or somebody, yeah. else will take, somebody else will take it up. Or, but, it, you know, it definitely feels like an ongoing um, attempt to look at a thing for what it is rather than what it has been framed as over the years. Yeah, yeah. I, I That's really my, truly my hope. Um, one of the things I have started putting together and I haven't, I've been working on it for a long time, but I haven't finished is, you know, like a Google spreadsheet of, of accounts of the banjo. And basically I want people to like, look at that and be like, Hey, I found one that's not on here. Let's, you know, let's put it on. Um, but another, you know, so, so one of the things that, uh, Dina Epstein writes in her book, sinful tunes and spirituals is basically saying, Oh, you know, she, she, um, she could read English, obviously. Um, she had studied French, so she could read French and she could read German. And so those were the accounts that she did. Uh, one of the reasons that I think this book could even, the book I wrote could exist is because she couldn't read Dutch. And that was a lot of the kind of material that I tapped into. Um, but you know, the, the one interesting thing that a lot of people have, have brought up to me in the past, and I think is a really interesting thing is the accounts of banjos in Spanish and Portuguese speaking colonies in the Americas are, you know, few and far between is, is, is almost saying that there are too many. Um, they're very, very, very scant. But one of the reasons for that is simply because the research hasn't been done. Um, 
I can definitely point a finger at myself, which is I can read Spanish and I still didn't get into the Spanish only because it's, it's that it's the same idea that I was talking about, about the, you know, West African, you know, it's like when somebody's done research in there, it's, it's easier to go like a little bit deeper and a little bit farther. Um, and since like we're at zero with Spanish and Portuguese, like I wouldn't even, you know, know where to start, but that's one where, um, I was talking with a, a professor of, um, Spanish who's been researching, um, black, uh, music and dance traditions in Mexico, um, and is kind of, you know, was interested in some things that I was saying. She's like, I think I've seen her, you know, description that's really similar to what you're talking about with the Banya Prey. Like, you know, can, you know, let's talk about that some more. Um, so my hope is also that, that, that this opens it up and, um, you know, has, has scholars too, who will say like, Oh, I did, I have seen an account of the banjo. I just didn't realize that it was something important basically. Um, and I think that that's, you know, I say that at the very end of the book as well of like that the banjo for a long time has been kind of seen as an instrument that is a joke that people joke a lot about. Um, and my other hope is just that people realize that it's, it's not a joke and that we can take it seriously and think about it seriously. And, and what are the, what are the things that we can learn when we do that? And it's just, it just sort of reading the, the foreword that Rhiannon Giddens wrote for the book, just the way she talks very eloquently about, and she now, whenever she picks up the instrument, she can't help but feel like she's connecting with her ancestors in a way that she maybe didn't feel before just through understanding some of the story of the instrument and, and the cultures it came from and how it, it came to be what it is today. And that's, I think it's a beautiful thing. Um, and there's so many other things I could ask you and so many other avenues we could go down. But I think that point of reaching the end of a story that is not the end of a story is quite a nice, quite a nice place to wrap up. Um, it's been fascinating. I've learned, I learned so much through the book and there's, I think there's, it needs to be read again because there's so much in there that I didn't take in first time. Um, <laughs> but thank you for, you know, a fascinating book and a really interesting chat as well. Thank you, Matt. Um, I really enjoyed it. These were, these are some great questions and some great discussions. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.